Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Then I heard the pod, now I'm a subscriber. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that's it for this week. We'll see you in two weeks' time. <laughs> we have peaked. <laughs> oh, magnificent, Kevin. Bravo. Uh, how are you after that triumphant uh, lyrical call? Look, you know that I love a pun. And this this is playing very much into my wheelhouse, uh, our new new way of introducing the pod. So, yeah, I'm having lots of lovely fun just thinking of different variations I can use. Uh, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. It's good. It's good. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm, re- I'm really good. Yeah, very much enjoying this clash and looking forward to getting into the, into, uh, the second half of it. Yeah, so yeah, uh, concluding our classic rock live albums clash two weeks ago, I took us through the Stones' Get Your Yaya's Out. Kev, what are you doing this week? We will be doing uh, The Who's Live at Leeds. Boom, we will indeed. Uh, Before we do, however, it is Video Killed the Radio Star time, and it's my pick this week. It is. And the video to a song we both are big fans of. It's There Goes the Fear by Doves from their 2002 sophomore album, The Last Broadcast. Yeah, as as Tim says, we are... I fucking love Doves. So, do, do you know what? I was, I was trying to find like a, a more verbose way of uh, introducing that, but it's like, no. Like, was gutted. We were both gutted this year that they were supposed to be touring, and unfortunately... Um, due to personal circumstances that they they cancelled the tours. But we've seen them many, many times, and yes. they're fucking great. They are great. They are great. And uh, a personal favourite of yours in particular, I think, there goes the fear. Very much so. Yeah. So the video uh, was directed by Julian House and Julian Gibbs. Sadly, their production company isn't called Julian Squared, which is a missed opportunity, if you ask me, but there you go. I was about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So, the video is unique in that it's constructed entirely out of pre-existing footage, so they didn't shoot anything in particular Mm -hmm. for it. Uh, It won a Design and Art Direction Award in 2003 for Outstanding Direction. Much of the footage in the video, so basically... If you've seen it, then you know it. If not, we'll tweet out the link, obviously, as, as we usually do. So, yeah, the, the uh, footage featuring the protagonist, if you like, of the video comes from a 1968 documentary film, Time Out of Mind, which, according to IMDb, <laughs> is, and I quote, intended for general practitioners, this film shows the psychiatric problems involved with mixed anxiety and depressive states. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it explains a lot that happens in the video. <laughs> it does. So, Kev, what does happen in the video? <laughs> so, essentially, the protagonist keeps sort of doing normal, everyday things and then being transported to Brazil. Well, may I read <laughs> my notes yeah. to describe the video? Okay, so we start. 
we have Man Shopping with Wife in 1960s Britain. He hallucinates sexy girls going swimming in the mountains. He runs away, destroying the carefully laid out display items, I might add. He drives along American freeways through Californian towns in his black Ford Zephyr. Then he sees a small blonde child walking along a drive up riverbed. He frantically gets out of his car, at which point the boy runs away. I mean, presumably because the scary man in the pedo coat's running towards him, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, then he ends up at a British rail station and boards a train headed for, of all places, Rio de Janeiro. Uh, at this point, a creepy-looking elderly lady smiles at him, along with some other strange characters, including an obvious serial killer priest. So he decides to go to sleep, where he dreams of a sexy girl drowning on a beach. Then he wakes up and the train is in Rio. And what luck! It's carnival time! And that's the video. So do you, do you change a crew or Birmingham for Rio? <laughs> exactly! <laughs> so that was obviously a, a, a slightly tongue-in-cheek take. I think the way that the different footage is spliced mm-hmm. together to make it, it, it as it's such a psychedelic acid trip of a video... And it fits the song so perfectly, particularly the carnival bit at the end, with obviously mm-hmm. the, the samba way that the, the, the song closes. My only complaint is that the video is to an edited version of the song and not the full. Yeah, I want the I want the full I want the full song really. But um, uh, I just wanted to talk about doves, <laughs> to be honest. The next train is calling at Rugby, Manaus, and Rio. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> uh, yep, yeah, great stuff. Good video. We will post the link. Go and watch it. It yeah. is. Uh, it is a bit weird. Yeah, it's it's weird, but it's doves and it's a fucking boss tune. So yeah, enjoy, enjoy, indeed. All right, okay. So Kev, with that, please start taking us through the Who live at Leeds. So uh, the album was released on the 23rd of May 1970 by Decca and MCA in the United States and has been variously described as one of the best live rock recordings of all time. So uh, a little bit of background. The Who released Tommy in, in May 1969 and it completely transforms their reputation their everything really they become huge on the back of that yeah and what they became fearful of is that what they had been before which was a really hard rock band that that had been lost so john entwistle uh quoted in the complete chronicle of the who said uh, we were better known for doing Tommy than we were for all the rest of the stuff. I mean, all the guitar smashing and stuff went completely out of the window. We did, we turned into snob rock. We were the kind of band <laughs> that Jackie Onassis would come and see. Oh, fucking hell. Wow. <laughs> so they were kind of like, you know, we need to record who we are before we lose it, essentially. And so in the aftermath of this, they, they, they go to America um, for a tour and they had the idea that basically that doing a live album was going to be this perfect follow-up that would show show who that who they truly were to this new audience that they'd they'd managed to sort of ensconce through tommy nice word and, 
And bootlegs as well had become, as Tim spoke about last week, uh, two weeks ago, you know, they've become this huge thing. So they wanted to beat him at their own game. You know, they could record something and that was live and then sell it to the audience who would have bought it anyway as a, as a bootleg. So the idea was when they toured America that they would record it. But unfortunately, Bob Pridden had, had recorded all these shows they'd done in America but they hadn't actually bothered to kind of work out whether any of them were any good. <laughs> and they hadn't taken any notes or anything. So, so they'd recorded like 30-odd shows and had no idea with, if any of them were ones that they wanted to release. Plus, they'd also had eight gigs in England that, again, they hadn't made any notes on. So they had 38 recordings of gigs that the, you know, there's no i they had no idea what they were going to do. I mean, that's just that's just that's poor administration, is it? Really, you know, you got to get your admin in order. No one's keeping set lists. No, 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 no one's asking anyone. How do we sound there? Was that good? Was that not good? It's just, it's just come on, guys. So well, mm, we come to we come to this. So they have they have two more gigs: one at Leeds, one at Hull. And then they're going to have a break. So the so the idea was get an eight, eight track rig, record the shows. They'll mix them in Townsend Studio afterwards, and then it'll be it'll be fine. Bob Pridden then asks Pete Townsend, right? Well, you know these thirty eight other shows that I've recorded. What do you want me to do with them? And in a move that um, he'd later label one of the stupidest decisions of his life. I mean signing up for a paedophile website or research. <laughs> I'd say it's probably worse. Yeah. Told him to burn the tapes so they'd never wind up in the hands of bootleggers. <laughs> so Prison <laughs> remembers this moment very well all, all years later. I burned them in a dustbin in the back of a cottage I had. I put them in the bin, dropped a match, and that was it. I felt weird, but we were already planning on playing another show. I didn't think 20 years on people would be crying out for these things, but it couldn't have been everything because some of them did eventually service and they got used. So, <laughs> so as well as his other transgressions, Pete Townsend is also singularly responsible for global warming. <laughs> I mean, and anyone who's seen Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards um, will also know that that fire will have burned very quickly and very hot. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Uh, and it's killed Hitler, uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in Glorious Bastards, it, like, it, it's, it's fantastic for three scenes, two of which involve Christoph Waltz, the other one, Michael Fassbender. Other than that... Eh? I think, it, I think it's, it's a really good Tarantino film and it's let down by the final act, personally. Yeah, okay. That's all right. All right, fine. I like it, uh, mm-hmm. but I like it because of those three scenes, which yeah. are all incredibly suspenseful. Anyway, we're not talking about film clash. Um, sorry. <laughs> Again. <laughs> <laughs> so they record the um, the gigs at Leeds University on February the 14th and then at uh, Hull City Hall the, the following day. They do the gigs, they're recorded, um, when Bob Pridden listened back to the tapes, he was horrified to discover that John Entwistle's bass parts somehow weren't recorded at Hull. 
So <laughs> he had to. So he was told, forget about Hull and concentrate on getting the Leeds one out. So if only we could forget about Hull. <laughs> so that is why it was live at Leeds as opposed to live at Hull. I can't imagine Live at Hull being quite the legendary album and massive seller <laughs> that Live at Leeds became. Just and listen, I, I'm sorry for punching down. Uh, I've never been to Hull. I'm sure it's lovely. It's probably not. <laughs> hey, I mean they've got their own phone system. <laughs> That's true. They do. Absolutely, yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, anyway, go on. So, like, but the lead show itself, it wasn't a perfect recording or anything. The, so there were intermittent clicks that were picked up uh, by the mics. The backing vocals weren't recorded properly. So they had, so similar to the Stones, they had to have a session at Pi Studios. And John and uh, Pete Townsend simply sang along and they did the backing vocals. So he said they did the backing vocals in one take. So it preserved preserve the immediacy of the live gig but it's still you know they still had to overdub not to the extent the stones did no uh, that, that but, is true so it's interesting you say about the clicks so this is another album that i have on vinyl uh, i've acquired it recently on vinyl and there is a note on the disc which says cracking noises okay do not correct so it's basically they've got to put a note on there mm-hmm. saying, "Yeah, your record player isn't fucked. It's that our dodgy recording that's the problem," which is you've never seen that anywhere else. That's nuts. So Townsend mixes it with Bob Pridden, and so the the initial idea was to release it as a double album, but amazingly they decided to do it as a single LP with just six songs on it. Uh, so the actual gig itself opens with Heaven and Hell, includes most of Tommy, but that was, but they were left off in choice of some earlier hits and covers, really. I mean, there's a genuine question to be asked if would they have even managed to fit it on a double LP if they'd included the entire 33-song gig? Well, indeed. But also, according to David Hepworth, because there was no microphone, so they didn't mic up the audience. So mm. you kind of occasionally hear crowd noise, but it's described by David Hepworth as a distant presence, as distant as the traffic outside. So we made the recording a faithful account of what the band played and nothing more. And that's true. It's true that. Yeah, it's, absolutely. You kind of hear the odd occasional sign that it's a live gig, but it's there's very little that kind of gives you that live feel to it. Yeah, you you can't hear a woman in the audience shouting at them to play Can't Explain, you devils. <laughs> <laughs> Go and listen to our show from two weeks ago if you want to understand where that joke comes from. <laughs> so that's that's what I've got in, in terms of background. The only thing, the only code I will add to that is that the um, they later discovered that about two or three songs into the whole recording... John Entwistle's bass kicks in. <laughs> and so that was later released as part of a sort of anniversary version special of... edition time. Yeah, special edition anniversary okay. kind of thing. And so they released the live at Hull version as well. Very good. I have nothing more, so should we go on? So when did you first hear it, Tim? So apparently, uh, for several years, I've been listening to the 1995 14-track reissue rather than the six-track original release. 
So technically, this is a first listen for me, although not really because I've listened to that version loads of times. Mm-hmm. But as I just said, I also now own this on vinyl, which again is nice. So uh, yeah, probably. When did I first listen to that fourteen-track version? Again, as you explained last week, when it came to uh, the prevalence of music on the internet <laughs> in the early to mid two thousands, that's when I came across a version of uh, this album. How about you? So very similar to you that this is the first time that I've heard the six track version. I'd heard the 14 track special edition, which I believe that somebody, well, you, (laughs) um, had somehow come across it in a digital format and managed to share, share that with me in some way, shape or form. In my benevolence. Yes. that, That did not break any copyright laws. No. Nope. 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 (laughs) I think that's us covered. So, right, should we move on? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the artwork. So the cover itself was designed by Graph Reeks and basically was designed to look very similar to... It was parodying the, as you've mentioned before, the liver than you'll ever be uh, bootleg of the Stones. Yeah. So it it's a brown paper cardboard with the Who Live at Leeds printed in plain blue or red block letters, depending on which version you got. So my version is red. Or the very rare uh, first English pressing stamp is black. That's worth Ooh. a lot. I um, it is. And yeah, whilst it's quite a... It's not an exciting album to look at. It's it's a very clever design. It's a great album cover. So yeah. Metallica's self-titled album, the Beatles' self-titled album, they're not exciting to look at, but my God, they are iconic album covers. This mm-hmm. is in that similar vein. It's a great album cover because it's got that dirty, knock-off, get-it-down-the-market bootleg mm-hmm. aesthetic to it. And it's not just so it's got the yeah the, the rubber stamp as I say mine's red, but it, it feels like it's cardboard. It's really simple. It's not even a proper envelope. It's literally just folded cardboard. Well, I know they all are, but the way you open it, it's got a real bootleg feel to it. It's a great mm-hmm. sleeve in the way it's constructed, in the way it looks, and it is hands down the best album cover of these two albums. Yeah, because because it's really clever. It's a really well thought out piece of design. And if you think about it, considering the Stones were or Decker were sort of strong armed, if you like, into releasing "Get Your Yaya's Out" to counter a bootleg, it would have made more sense for them to say, "Well, we'll mm-hmm. just release." You know. Uh, anyway, it's really clever. It's a really great sleeve. Yeah. Okay. I haven't got anything more. Have you got anything you wish to to add? I do not. Let's get into it. Okay. So, we open the we open the album with the cover Young Man Blues. So, it's a cover of a Mose Allison song. And my first my first comment here is this sounds very Zeppelin. This sounds really uh Zeppelin 1. Yes, it does. Okay. So, my first comment is, my God, 
Keith Moon was a fucking phenomenal drummer, wasn't he? Yeah, he really was. Uh, not the last time I'm going to be saying that this week. Just like last week, I did warn you, there's going to be a lot of drumming talk on these two shows. I mean, fucking hell, Keith Moon was great. But yeah, Roger Daltrey could really wail. Perhaps not to Robert Plant levels, although he gets fucking close right at the end of this. And Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend sounds great on the guitar as well. But I absolutely agree with you. It does have massive Led Zeppelin vibes, this. It, it, it's, uh, again, a cover of a blues song, Led Zeppelin, heavy rock. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, um, when we do some Zeppelin, uh, whichever Zeppelin album we do, pretty much, we're going to get into some strong lawsuit chat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the sound here. And it's interesting you talk about that they wanted to show off that they still main, still remain true to their rock, heavy rock roots. And they start the album with this. I mean, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Because this is fucking huge. Very much so. And so as an album, because we've got to we gotta take it as that, the band straight away absolutely cooking. Mm-hmm. And you get to hear from all of them their vir- virtuosity. Yes. That, but most of all the rhythm section. So you've you've lauded Keith Moon quite rightly. We've all John Entwistle's bass playing. Oh, I'll be talking about him oh, quite a bit as well. Don't we're worry. Gonna, we're going to have lovely, <laughs> lovely bass chats, as we usually do. I mean, uh, so Keith Moon and uh, John Entwistle, the two least problematic members of The Who as well. Let's just be honest <laughs> <Yes>. about that. <laughs> Very much so. And I'm really glad that they picked this version where you get to hear John Entwistle's bass. Yes, absolutely. Then the whole version, because it's great. Like, And that, that rhythm section, like... That's that's why I like. There are many reasons why I wouldn't see um, the Who now in their current incarnation. <laughs> but um, yeah, missing half of what made them is you know you're not seeing the Who. No, you're not seeing the Who. You mentioned when we were going through the Stones two weeks ago that Charlie Watts was the bricks and mortar, the foundation of everything they were, and we talked about Bill Wyman as well. Your rhythm section is more than half of what you are. It's the building blocks for everything you do. Without your rhythm section, you're not the same band. You take Ringo and Paul McCartney out of the fucking Beatles. You ain't got the Beatles anymore. Well, (laughs) take McCartney. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no, that's really really hard. Because Ringo... Peace and love, Kev. Peace and love. (laughs) You can fuck (laughs) off with that. Um... No, like Ringo gets a lot of criticism, but like is better than he's better than he's given credit for. But it's it's a different band. There's a reason why when Page and Plant have recorded music since Led Zeppelin disbanded, I mean, because <laughs> John Bonham died. There's a reason why they've referred to themselves as Page and Plant and not Led Zeppelin. Well, yeah, it's a different band. Well, because. I mean, we as as you know, we love a tortuous analogy. Essentially, the the lead singer and and the bait and the the lead guitarist are the guild. Like 
the bass and the drums, they are the lily. They are the, as we've said, like the foundation. That's a lovely Christian analogy there, Kevin. Well done. Consider the lily of the field and how he often put chicken soup inside his drums. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you entirely that I would have no interest in seeing The Who in its current incarnation and uh, the sad demise of both Keith Moon and John Entwistle are merely two of those reasons. I'm sure we'll get on to the other reasons later on. Yes, we shall. Okay, (laughs) so we move on to Substitute. So only one of three original Who songs on this album. It's mad! But I suppose, again, it's like the whole point of it is they want to show that they're true to their roots. And as you said the other week with the Stones, when they were doing the Chuck Berry, that's how they grew up. That's how they came together. So performing covers of rock and roll and blues songs is is what made them. And that is their roots. So, mm-hmm. okay, understandable. Anyway, sorry. No, so, um, so again, we have to talk about Keith Moon. Mm. <laughs> because... Fucking hell. Is is drumming on this? Wow. What I've said is it, I, I never thought it possible that in a four-piece band playing with everyone together, you can have a virtuoso performance from the drummer. But there you go. That's what it is. Oh, my God. It's fucking incredible. It, it's, a, it's such an amazing performance. Like, and You feel like you are damning everyone else with faint, faint praise, but in comparison that he is, he is incandescent decently bright in his performance and everyone else fades into the backgrounds for me in comparison because you know he is so good whilst everyone else is performing really well and this is a good performance it is it's all about keith moon it is all about keith moon yeah i've pretty much said the same thing substitutes have never been a particular favorite of mine but this is a really good version, and it's because of Keith Moon. Uh, it, it's a nice length. It's less than two and a half minutes. I mean, let's hope they remember that for later on in the show, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got some comments. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is all about. It's all about Keith Moon. Before we move on to the next song, can I quickly talk about uh, a song which isn't featured on the album or the original album, but is featured mm-hmm. on the version that we're more familiar with? So that track is called A Quick One While He's Away. Uh, A song which Pete Townsend introduces as being about a young girl guide who is seduced by an engine driver named Ivor. And with that, Kevin, I allow you free reign to talk about Pete Townsend. Where's the book? (laughs) What book's that, Kev? So, for those who aren't aware, Pete Townsend was arrested by uh, the British police um, in the 2000s? I think it was about 2003, yeah. For accessing child pornography, which Pete Townsend gave the explanation he was researching for a book. Indeed. No book has ever been seen. No book has ever been released. No, no. And I, I, I am sure the inclusion of a song around again to quote Pete Townsend, a young girl guide who has been seduced by an engine driver named Ivor is purely coincidental to the unfortunate events that you have just described. Mm-hmm. And 
that's all I want to say about that. Yep, that's all we're saying. Looking forward to reading the book when it is finally released. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we move on to Summertime Blues, another cover. What do you think? Well, apparently it was something of a live staple throughout their career. It's good. I like it. It's it's played at a hell of a pace. Mm-hmm. But I'm really sorry to keep banging on like a stuck record. But fucking hell, Keith Moon again. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. And, it's, and again, John M. Whistle as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, and those two provide the bedrock that allow Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend to do what they need to do. I don't have anything else to say about this. No, it's, it's, it's a bit of a surprising choice to include a, a, a 50s rock and roll standard. But again, if they're trying to get back to their roots, you can you can sort of, you can understand it. And we've talked about that over the last few shows, actually. But yeah, I've got nothing yeah, to say about it, really. So it's, it's really well performed. I've always liked their version of this song. Yeah, it's it, it, it's really good. And, but... I think the the beauty that you get from Live at Leeds is you really, really appreciate Keith Moon more more so than you do on the albums where you, obviously the guitar and the vocals are a bit higher in the mix, mm-hmm. but you get to you certainly hear what what a phenomenal drummer he he was. So we've talked before well when we went through queen a number of weeks ago around the, the conversation we've had before about fantasy band and obviously freddie's your front man keith moon's probably a drummer it's 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 keith moon or john bonham it's probably keith moon let's be honest and well given given what we were saying last week surely charlie watts is is he he's not he's not a spectacular you know he he's not a performative drummer as much as bonham or Keith Moon, but what he does is so effective. Like it's it's a really hard thing. It is what I'd say about what I think is great about Keith Moon on this album is that he is able to be a virtuoso without the ten minute drum solos that John Bonham was was famous for, and he is able to hold everything together in the same way that Charlie Watts so consistently did for the Stones. And therefore, is the best of both worlds, to be honest with you, without, without ever saying, I'm the centre of attention and I demand my, my, as I say, my solo, he still does it and he still dominates, you know, what's no, going I th- on. I think, you, I think you've made an excellent argument there. He, he can do the, the Bonham pyrotechnics and he can also do the, again, this sounds really unfair to Charlie Watts, but like the holding it all together, the steady Eddie, Mm-hmm. He yeah. can do he can do both things, yeah, and still be a real presence within the band, a real character. So yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think we are both agreed that uh, the drummer in our fantasy band would definitely not be Lars Ulrich, <laughs> or the uh, fellow who used to wear a pie hat in dodgy. <laughs> Brilliant! Uh, and what a way to end this part of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Uh, I have nothing more to say about that, so should we move on to the next track? Yeah, let's go. Um, so I am shaking all over. Yeah. What do you think about this? <sighs> right. Oh, oh, okay, go on. <laughs> okay. So it's perfectly competently performed. Mm-hmm. Everyone's, it's well done. I ju- it just, 
it never really grabs me until you get the extended solo and then then i'm into it then i'm i'm enjoying myself but before that it's a bit meh for me yeah okay so i, I i've said similar so well first thing i say i think there's a nice segue into this from summertime blues mm-hmm. but yeah it, it, it is well performed but it's somewhat unremarkable, and for me, it probably goes on a, a little bit too long, which probably isn't that great a sign for what's still to come. <laughs> well, and g- given that we, you know, it's a six-song album, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've already hit filler. Well, exactly, <laughs> yeah. This is the thing. And again, th- by this time, they're a band with not an, a short back catalogue. You know, and, and a shallow pool of songs to choose from. Do you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, it's a third cover version on side one of four tracks, which is odd in itself. So, I do have an interesting, quite funny story. Uh, so, apparently, Shaking All Over was covered by The Guess Who. And in Randy Bachman's autobiography, he talks about when he met John Entwistle. And John Entwistle said that people constantly got the Who and the Guess Who mixed up and that the Who were tired of being yelled at for not playing Shaken All Over, so they started including it in their sets to keep the crowd happy. Backman responded that the Guess Who had the same reasons for playing My Generation. <laughs> I'd like to hear a, a, um, the Guess Who version of my generation that would be quite interesting absolutely and there's a simpsons connection there and it's home of being a dick at gigs because you've got the backman turner overtime <laughs> get to the working overtime uh, and then you've also got play, play magic, magic bus, bus uh, see, which will happen shortly I, see i was waiting waiting for magic bus to get to that <laughs> Uh, great stuff. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about shaking all over. Okay, so then we go into side two. Mm. And an extended... Well, right. It is put down as my generation, but it's essentially a medley, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what do you make of the 14 minutes and 47 seconds of this track, Kevin? <laughs> so I'm very mixed on it. Okay. As you, as I'm sure, that comes as absolutely no surprise. When they're absolutely going for it, when they are playing at a million miles an hour, and to be honest, when Daltrey's nowhere fucking near them, <laughs> I am having a fucking great time. But there is loads of, loads of filler. There's loads of twatting about yeah there's like a couple of their songs in there and it just becomes a bit of a jam as i say the bit where they're where they're properly going for it is a hard hard band i'm enjoying that but it goes on far too long i do like how it ends um but as i say like the bits with brexit bell end <laughs> are the essentially the worst bits in this song i i'd say well okay I've said some very, very similar things, actually. So, yeah, the, the first two or three minutes when they're actually playing My Generation are fucking great. The volume's up to 11. It's mm-hmm. it's so loud. It's played again at Mach 4. Everyone sounds great. And this is where, obviously, you talk about John Entwistle because those bass licks, 
Oh, yeah. Playing at that pace. Oh, my God. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Then you get a bit of stuff from Tommy. All right. It's not what I'm expecting, but I'm still enjoying myself. Then you go into a little bit of Naked Eye, and you're like, oh, I'm still into it, I guess. And then you get more stuff from Tommy. Pete Townsend's having a lovely old time there on his own. Fine. All right. You crack on, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I said crack on, Kevin. <laughs> Wonder what he was thinking about. <laughs> uh, but by this point, there's there's so many stops and starts in this medley that besides Pete Townsend, I'm not sure who else is having a lovely old time, to be honest with you. Me thinks, me thinks Pete has, has been the progenitor behind this. Well, right. Even I've checked out by the 11-minute mark. Because for the last two and a half minutes, we've had nothing but Pete Townsend and we've got another four minutes still to go. I would say, so it's interesting you say you like the way it ends because for me, if you kick back into my generation for the last minute, minute and a half, I would leave this feeling far better about the preceding 15 minutes than I do because by the end of it, I'm bored. And I think the, it, there's probably just about enough variety in this to save it, but only just. I am I am really at my wit's end by the time this finishes. And I think they could save it all by sticking a final verse chorus of my generation right at the end to bring it back up to a thousand miles an mm-hmm. hour and leave everyone absolutely bouncing. So, yeah, that's me. Yeah, it's a real funny, funny song. Because there are some, there are some really good bits in it, but mm. fuck me. <laughs> I mean, like as you say, yep. like it got to eleven minutes and you're checking out, and you have far more patience for this kind of shite than I do. <laughs> Listen, I, I am the self-indulgent lead guitarist. Okay, I've been there. I've done it. I literally been on stage where everyone's checking out, and going, "Let's go, come on." And even I'm like, come on, Pete, enough's enough. Turn the laptop off. <laughs> <laughs> Play Magic Bus! Yes, of course. And we finish with Magic Bus. I mean... So apparently, sorry, this was released on my birthday in 1968. Well, not I wasn't born in 1968, so I was minus 13 years old. But you know what I mean. Yeah, and so this... I, I love how this introduces. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that slow build into the song is is great, and like how it's how it's really stripped back as well. And then the band fucking go for it, and that's what I want. That's what I want from the Who. And I've slagged off the Brexit Bellend in the previous song. Really good gob iron work from from uh, Daltrey there. Fucking great, and you know it's. It, as I have said, everyone here is great. Uh, and yeah, Roger Daltrey, he may be a massive meth who didn't think Brexit would impact on touring bands. I mean, how's that gone, Rog? And Pete Townsend is, well, you know. He might not be able to leave the country. But fucking hell, everyone's brilliant. Like, yeah, the fucking harmonica work from Roger Daltrey is absolutely filthy. But you know what? I'm just going to focus on the rhythm section, yeah. rhythm section again because just fucking brilliant.
brilliant. So yeah, it's all about the build, as you said. Starts off with literally just quiet percussion in the background. It builds and builds and builds. By the time Keith Moon finally comes in, you're fucking salivating. You're gagging for it. And then no sooner they bring it up, they just take it right back down again. It's it's a great version of a great song. And it is a brilliant set closer and a brilliant album closer. You might say that at eight minutes, it's too long. But on this one, I don't care because it's fucking great. No, I, I agree with you that the eight minutes, it doesn't feel like eight minutes. Whereas my generation very much felt like its length. Yeah, and it's the song that brought Springfield back together. <laughs> it very much is. It broke down that wall. <laughs> the Who's Hasselhoff moment. <laughs> and, and that's it. I have... Well, that is it. I do have one more thing to say about Magic Bus, if I may. Okay. In 1985... Alvin and the Chipmunks covered this song for their TV series episode, The Price Isn't Right. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I want to hear an Alvin and the Chipmunks version of Magic Bus. Well, <laughs> I've got nothing. I've got nothing to add there. Uh, we're done, Kev. We're done. Okay. Have you got any reviews? So, yes. Um... The critical reception, by and large, we'll get to him, <laughs> was incredibly positive. So uh, Nick Cohen, uh, for a review for the New York Times, praised Live at Leeds as the definitive hard rock holocaust on the best live rock album ever made. Oh, that's an unfortunate turn of phrase. Well, indeed. Jonathan Eisen of Circus Magazine felt that it flowed better than Tommy and that not since that album had been quite so incredibly heavy, so inspired with the kind of kinetic energy that I do have managed to harness here. Greil Marcus in Rolling Stone was a little less enthusiastic and said that while Townsend's packaging for the album was a tour de force of the rock and roll imagination, the music was dated and uneventful. Hmm. Harsh. He felt that Live at Leeds functioned simply as a document of the formal commercial end of the first great stage of The Who's great career. What did did somebody, probably writing for The Village Voice at this uh, point, have to say, though? Would you like me to read Robert Criscall, Nobby McGee's review of Live at Leeds? Uh, Yeah, I I think we should. Okay, so Nobby said... This band has never even tried to simulate the stage power in the studio, except on its raw debut, which makes side one, with its first ever recordings of two live covers, and the first version of the classic substitute available here on LP, doubly valuable. But side two extrapolates the uncool at any length magic bus, and the bish-bash climax of my generation, which has to be seen to be believed. I much prefer the raw debut. He gave it a B. I mean, I have to say, and I hate this, I hate this, whilst I have a hard disagree on what he says about Magic Bus, mm-hmm. I kind of think he's spot on there. He's he's close to being, to actually reviewing it properly, so mm. he, gets, he gets a pass for once. For once, indeed, for once. Um, I have no more reviews. No, so I have I have nothing else to to say. So I'll go on to the legacy, really. 
So after the Leeds and Hall shows, the Who kind of slowed down and didn't tour anywhere near as much. Um, and they focused on more complex studio albums, as as was sort of the prevailing winds at that time. Uh, so things like Who's Next and Quadrophenia. Sorry, but just may I come in? So it's, again, I'm just going to go back to what you said in the in the background. And the reason why they wanted to do this was to show that they were still true to their, their hard rock roots. Well, so after Tommy and after this, they follow it up with Who's Next, which is a fucking massive rock album. And for me, it's the Who's Best album. I, I think Who's Next is brilliant. You know, what you got on there, you got Won't Get Fooled Again, you got Barbara O'Reilly and songs like that. It's great. So if this was intended to serve as a reset, then again, mission accomplished, I would say. Yeah, and I mean... Daltrey himself, so told Sounds in 1970, he was really happy with the album. So it was one show and it was a very valid bit of plastic, you know. <laughs> I mean, that that is very much damning with faint praise. Um, there was hardly anything dubbed on it. There were more things uh, taken off than put on. Two backing voices were added, but that was only because the mic fell over. The whole thing as it happened. We even pulled a lot of the crowd out because it was like distracting to listen to. At point of order, Rog, you may say that we only put some backing vocals in, but again, as we mentioned during the Stones episode the other week, how therefore is Pete Townsend playing reverse backwards played acoustic guitar? Because he's an octopus. During Magic Buzz. We've, we've established the explanation for this. <laughs> Are you saying that Pete Townsend is somewhat handsy? <laughs> I am not suggesting that. Uh, <laughs> anyone who is a legal representative of a Mr. Townsend. Um, I am merely saying that he is an octopus, much like the Queen is a lizard, as is Pete Price. <laughs> Pete Price is a lizard. That is that is definitely true. The Queen won. Well, I don't know. Um, speak to David Icke about that. Speak to a former Coventry goalkeeper. <laughs> Uh, sorry, carry on. So yeah, um, I will now quote Pete Townsend. So he was he was talking and he said, "I knew we'd hit a roll, but this mainly depended on Moon, of course. And the cut, like as we've talked about, Keith Moon was the key to to what they were they were about. Really, he was at the apex of balance between his drug use and youthful good health. Five years later, he would start to slide. Moon, as a musician, was a great listener and followed what John and I played." Roger feels, looking back, that Moon followed what he did vocally as well. So Moon was everywhere in these times. We're playing with great affection. We all seem to have boundless energy. Oh, fair play. There you go. And essentially their tours after 71 were much shorter and they were, as became the de rigueur, they were private planes, there were drug binges, the sets became a bit sloppier. And especially as Keith Moon slid into addiction, really. Mm, yeah. And unfortunately, as we know, that Keith Moon died after a uh, after a party, and the the who carries on after this with the three of them, and have officially carried on since the death of John Entwistle. And yeah. although you've got half the band missing, and as we've said. You know, they were really, really important. Uh, and we have spoken uh, when we covered Queen around 
well, we didn't speak about it because Queen stopped playing music they did. after Freddie died. Yes, because um, nothing, and they did. They had no more releases, including nothing that was released that had Freddie's voice on it. But they just kind of cobbled it together. Yeah, no, no, that didn't happen. Much like the Beatles didn't release um, anything after John Lennon died. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, let's not let's not go over that. No, once your rhythm section's gone, you're not a band anymore. Sorry, you're not a who. Uh, you are... Call yourselves the whom. And, you know, everyone <laughs> <wanna> be... <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a, um, a covers band that are called the whom. Speaking of which, do you remember when you and I went to see the uh, the band from the jam that had Bruce Foxman in it. <laughs> exactly. I, I remember you you remarked during that. So from the jam, well, it used to be, and I forget what the drummer was called, but the two guys from the jam that weren't Paul Weller. Mm-hmm. But then the drummer did something with Paul Weller, and Bruce Foxton saw his ass and kicked the drummer out. And so it was then just Bruce Foxton and two random fellas playing the Jams back catalogue, and you remarked during that gig, and it's the most acerbic comment I've ever heard anyone make. It's like he's in his own tribute band. <laughs> I mean, he literally he, was. He's fucking spot on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why are you in your own tribute band? Just just give it up. It's yeah. just sad. It, 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 was, it was one of the... It, much like... Um, People battling over uh, the rights to the name of uh, Bucks Fizz. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to say the Beach Boys, but no, no. I went, I went solo run <laughs> because that's what it is. Get in, David Van Day. <laughs> of course, the criticism of being your own tribute band is something that we would never level at Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, or for that matter, Brian May or Roger Taylor, because mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Kev, it's an audio format. Yeah. <laughs> Only I saw that look. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I had very wide eyes at that point. <laughs> right, come on. So there's so there's a quote from Mick Farron in Classic Rock issue 152. I mean it's a classic issue of Classic Rock. Well, exactly. But it does um it does bring it all together, at least certainly how he feels about it. So Live at Leeds reveals a band at the peak of home chops and fluid energy. Suddenly, everyone in the world wanted to see maximum R&B for themselves. And the Who were boldly precipitated into a, into a then very new rock and roll superstardom where only the Rolling Stones had gone before. The record was the band's portal to an unreal world where audiences numbered in their tens of thousands and Keith Moon could blow up hotel rooms and drive limousines into swimming pools. Very well said. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to add. So, on that, we will go on to best song, worst song. Mm. All right. Uh, worst song first. I mean, it could very easily be my generation, and it probably should, because it's far too long, and it, as I said, it, it, it fades away at the end into just boring, flabby nothingness. But, as I said at the time, there's probably just about enough in there to save it for me so i'm gonna go with shaking all over because it's just a bit meh and i'm sorry but a who live performance should never leave you thinking meh and so yeah that's it for me the best song it's magic bus Uh, it's a fucking triumph 
I love the song anyway, and I think this is the definitive version of it. So, yeah. How about you? Well, my word. We are entirely in concordance. Well, there you go. Because I said I said shaking all over was meh. It, you did. It is. Like, it's... For for a Who song, it is the audio equivalent of beige. Yeah. It it just doesn't it doesn't have the fire that you want. Whereas Magic Bus fucking does. That's yep. what I want from the Who. That's what I that's what I, I go to the Who for. Yep. Yeah, so Magic Bus is the best song on the album without question. And I think that the selection of it as the last song gives you a much more uplifting feeling than you may well have had had they switched them round. Agreed entirely. Okay. Okay. Should we get to scoring? Yes, we shall. So, with it being my choice, as is traditional, I will go first and then I will end. So, in terms of get your yaya's out, I mean... I genuinely believe that the Mick Taylor version of the Stones is the greatest incarnation of them. The the albums that they produced during this period are phenomenal. And I think that you can hear that on this album, that the interplay between Mick Taylor's guitar and Keith Richards, Mm -hmm. the bass work, the drumming, and Jagger... I mean, like, we talked about Freddie Mercury as a potentially our fantasy frontman. Jagger's gotta be has gotta be in that conversation because he is he he's got the singing chops and he's got the performance as well. So, you know, this is an amazing band. There there isn't a lot wrong with Get Your Yaya's out. You've got so many high moments that uh, Love in Vain, as you point out, Sympathy for the Devil, Midnight Rambler, like, and I, as you know, that I absolutely adore Let It Bleed as well. So, yeah, this is this is really difficult. It's not perfect, so it's not a ten out of ten, but it's a very strong album. So I'm gonna go eight and a half. Oh, wow, eight and a half. I re- I love I really like this album. Okay, well, I'm surprised that that. So it will from that come as no surprise to go. I'm not going to go as high as eight and a half. Uh, I'll tell you that now. Uh, but I'm going to go quite high, and I agree with a lot of what you said. I think it is a really, really good album. It is showcasing the band at for me the peak of its live and creative powers. As you said, we talked about how Mick Taylor is is. Uh, forgotten in their canon and very very harshly so and his performance on on this live album demonstrates that for me particularly on the robert johnson cover uh with that slide guitar solo it's it's incredible anyway i don't want to draw this out because you've pretty much said much of what i wanted to it isn't perfect at all one thing I think both of these albums suffer from is I actually end up wanting more. I think they, they, I think the expanded versions of both albums give you more of an insight into the performances. And although we said on our previous clash that both albums were too long, there's a balance to be struck that I don't think either of these albums get right. I think they're both 
too short in terms of the tracks at least. I also think it's a strange choice on both to include the number of covers that they do and to have two Chuck Berry covers on this I think is an odd decision. But yeah, the high points on this, Sympathy for the Devil, Street Fighting Man, Jumping Jack Flash, wow, phenomenal. And Honky Tonk Women as well for that matter. So it's getting a high score. I can't give eight and a half. I'll go eight. I'll go eight. Okay. Uh, it deserves eight out of ten. So 16 and a half is what Get Your Yaya's Out uh, achieves in terms of a score. Okay. So you to lead us into Live at Leeds. All right. So I've sort of said a lot of what I was going to say just a minute ago. It, I, I, I end up wanting more. Uh, I think having three covers on there in, in Space of Six Tracks is a really strange choice. But it's a great performance, uh, particularly from John Entwistle and Keith Moon, who were the heart and soul of what The Who were for me. And when it's high, it's really fucking high. So right from the start, with the cover of Young Man Blues, you know, everyone's right on it. The version of Substitute, not a song I'm hugely fond of, but it's a great version. And then bits of my generation are fantastic. Uh, it's, it's far too long. Then they finish it off with Magic Bus, which, as you said, leaves you feeling a lot more fondly about the album than you otherwise would, let's say. There's not a lot to say about six tracks other than what I've already just said. It, it, it should be more than it is. When it's high, it's really high. But when it's low, it's disappointing. And for a classic album, it's not actually that classic in a way. So I'm not going to score it as highly. I'm going to give it seven out of... No, actually, I'm going to give it six and a half out of ten. I'm going to go even lower. Because I think were it not for the opening track and the final track it would be a bit of a non-event. And so whilst there are some incredible bits on there, as an album, it leaves me wanting. So yeah, I'm sorry. Six and a half out of ten. How about you? Okay. Considering considering this album, and you know, with it having fewer tracks, you need to nail more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all, we, we both said meh to shaking all over and my generation isn't what it should be and it's a huge chunk of this album and even if you just take it just on the track numbers a third of this album you're going "Mm, not sure about that Mm -hmm. there are i mean without question that when when they're cooking that this is a band at the peak of their powers but for an album and i suppose this is the difficulty is that for an album that advertises the greatest or one of the greatest live performances ever put to disc, I'm left wanting so much more. Yep. There are moments within there that I'm going, "Fuck yeah!" I can I can exactly grab why you why you're saying that. Keith Moon, uh, John M. Whistle, like Pete Townsend and Daltrey, like as you say on Magic Bus, it's all right. It's all everything's great, and the op- the opening track as well, it's fucking caustic. And it's, you can see the influence on The Who on 
the kind of punk and post-punk bands that come later. Definitely. So, you know, that's, that's everything I want from them. But it's flabby. Yeah. And for a six-track album, that's saying something. Yeah. For six tracks, for it to be flabby, then, nah, I'm not having it. So I think... I think you have scored it correctly. I think six and a half, it's not like awful or anything like that, but it is a disappointment. And I think six and a half is the right place to come down because there are some really good moments on it, but it doesn't live to the billing that it's supposed to have. Absolutely right. Okay. So, well, that is uh, quite a, an emphatic victory for the Stones then. So uh, Live at Leeds by The Who gets... 13 out of 20, uh, which comes nowhere near the 16 and a half that we scored Get Your Yaya's Out. So congratulations to Mick Keith et al. You have won this album clash. So you can enjoy um, your night selling your wares in in your shop on Stella Street. Indeed. Uh, (laughs) And please pay your taxes. I just really wish I could do a, like Phil Cornwall's yeah, um, don't. Jagger. <laughs> yeah, don't. don't no, do I, 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 don't, I can't like it's because I will never get anywhere near it. Uh, okay, so. So what are we doing? Where to next? So I'm going to continue our live theme. But we're bringing things into our safe space of the 1990s. <laughs> and we're going Electro. Ooh, interesting. So, in two weeks' time, I am going to take us through from 2000, actually, not 1990s, Everything, Everything by Underworld. Okay. And in four weeks' time, Kevin, I would like you to take us through from 2007, the album Orbital, live at Glastonbury, 1994, to 2004. Okay. I have wanted to do both Underworld and Orbital for a fucking long time on Album Clash, and I am delighted that I have been offered the opportunity to do so with two brilliant live albums that showcase everything I love about both of these acts. Okay, interesting. Um, I've not heard either album, so it's going to be interesting for me. Okay. That's coming up. Uh, Until then, however, Kevin, Twitter, socials, off you go. Okay, so if, like me, you may find Alex Jones to be a hateful hateful goblin peddler of nonsense and um, snake oil. Lies, misinformation. Yeah, you know, whatever you want to describe. But if you want to enjoy yourself, please look on Twitter Look wherever you can to see his reaction during the latest court case when the prosecution lawyer for the Sandy Hook um, Elementary School parents says to him, your solicitors messed up and they passed over the entire contents of your phone to us. (laughs) Do you know what perjury is, Mr. Jones? Wow. So if you really want to, like, you're feeling low, look at Alex Jones's face as that information is relayed to him in, <laughs> in a courtroom in front of cameras. It's lovely stuff. <laughs> okay, whilst they're doing that on Twitter, what else can they do? 
Whilst on that, you can check out our Twitter at Clash Album. You can see some carefully curated quality content at Clash Album, or you can send us an old school email at albumclash at gmail.com. Boom. Please do all those things. Also, like, subscribe, share, all that stuff. Tell us what you want us to cover on Album Clash. As I said, in two weeks' time, I'm going to be taking us through Everything, Everything by Underworld. Four weeks' time, Kev will be taking us through Orbital Live at Glastonbury. All that is left for me to say is, I have, as usual, been Timothy. And I used to be Kev. And we shall see you in a couple of weeks. Take care, guys. Tell her. Tell her. Bye.